I want to read a quote that's going to sum up what we're going to be talking about this morning. This is the main theme that we're going to be talking about, and it's from John Stott, and he says this, If we had to sum up in a single brief sentence what life is all about, why Jesus Christ came into this world to live and die and rise, and what God is up to in the long, drawn-out historical process, both B.C. and A.D., it would be difficult to find a more succinct explanation than this. God is making human beings more like Christ. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, God's salvation that makes us more like Christ and how he does that. Uh, If you'll turn with me to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this morning we're going to talk about the salvation that we enjoy. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we're going to look at how God saves us. And he does it Completely at once, and he does it in a process. It's both end. Uh, how does God save us? He saves us from the penalty of sin, which is hell. He saves us from the power of sin, and he saves us from the presence of sin, which is heaven. So what does he do? He justifies us, makes us just as if we never sinned, He sanctifies us. He makes us more holy like Christ, like we're talking about. And he glorifies us. And that's the day that we will truly be like Christ. And he will make that happen. So he saves us completely. This passage uh, this morning was uh, one of John Newton's favorite passages. The man who wrote Amazing Grace. And rightfully so. It's about grace and God's grace that he has blessed us with. In his excellent book on John Newton and the Christian life, Tony Reinke writes this about this passage. In the second appearance of Christ yet to come, we find daily motivation to keep our focus on Jesus now. God's salvation doesn't end with our freedom from hell, but presses on, training us as disciples who think and act and speak like Christ. Putting these together, we see that Christ's first coming and Christ's return are bookends around a gathering of redeemed sinners who flourish in Christ-centered holiness. 
So we're going to look at the three ways that God saves us. We're going to start with that he saves us by justifying us, by saving us from the penalty of sin. Now in this passage, it's interesting because it's never actually um, specifically stated. It's more implied that this occurs. There are some hints to it for sure. Um, he brings salvation. What's part of salvation? It is justification. It is what he does when he saves us. He washes our sins away. Also, we see it in verse 14 where he gave himself for us. So here we see the atonement. He took our place on the cross. And so we see what he did again to save us and he justified us. He made us so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven. This, however, is just the starting point of our salvation. It's essential. No one can be saved unless they come to Christ in faith and are justified. But it is just the starting point of our salvation. So we can truly say we are saved right now. But also it is true that we are being saved. He is still in the process of saving us. And when we see here at the starting point of, uh, of justification, Christ-likeness is already starting to happen. Um, we see the removal of sin. We now stand before God the Father as Christ stands before God the Father as guiltless because of Christ. Um, and we see also that we are children of God. So again, there's hints of what's to come here, and uh, the process has begun, and it's actually complete as well at the same time. Uh, but it's good news that God is not through, us, through with us yet. As we just read, uh, he's not just content with saving us from hell. He's got bigger plans for us. Um, Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's begun this work in us and he's going to keep on doing it and, and ultimately when he comes back again, that's when it is complete and he will do his work. He has begun it and he will finish it. So here we see that's the first point. He justifies us. He saves us from our sins by his death on the cross for us. If you have not been justified, you can never be Christ-like. There's no path to that. It has to come through coming to him in faith. Then you can go into the process of becoming more and more like him and ultimately reach that level of glorification. So if you have not trusted in Christ to save you, uh, today is the day of salvation. Come to him now and uh, experience his salvation and all the salvation he has coming up for you as well. All right, so that's the first way he saves us. The second way he saves us is by sanctifying us, by making us more holy, more like Christ in this life. Uh, he saves us from the power of sin. It no longer rules over us. We are no longer slaves to it, but we can say no to it. So we see in verse 11 here that it is grace that uh, ultimately teaches us to renounce ungodliness. The grace of God has appeared so what is this grace that we're talking about here? Um, I believe it is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, everything he did in his first appearing. The appearing here is talking about the appearing of Christ and what he has done for us and who he is. So the better question is not really what is this grace, but who is this grace? He is our grace. He has appeared and we do not deserve him. Grace is receiving something we do not deserve, and that is Christ and everything that he is and all he's done for us. Um, we see here that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
So this salvation is offered to all people. However, all people will not benefit from it. The only people that will benefit from this salvation are those who come to Christ in faith, as we said at the first point, and are justified and are now, all our sins are washed away. That is the only way you can experience his salvation. Um, it's for all people, but only those who trust in him will actually receive it. In verse 12, we see that we are to renounce, it, this teaches us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us, it shows us uh, that that is not the life that he wants for us. It, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Uh, to renounce is the same word used in Luke 9.23, which means to deny. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That is what we're called. We're to deny it, to no longer live for self. And that is what we're doing here. We're, we are saying no is another way to put this. That's how the NIV says I think it's a good translation. Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Why should we say no? What, what's, what's the reason we should do that? Because these things are kind of fun. Worldly passions are a temptation for a reason because they are enjoyable. Um, but what, what happens is when we see Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, we see his greatness compared to what the world has to offer. That's how it teaches us to say no because we now see how superior he is to what the world is offering. We see God for who he is, and now we can see the world for what it is. And we see God is infinitely better. It's just like back in the day, this is more my time period, uh, there was the say no to drugs. Yeah. Why would you say no to drugs? And the commercials would show how awful drugs are. I mean, there's just, there's a dumb choice to use drugs. And so that, and people could see drugs for what they were then. They could see the damage that they can do in people's lives, and that's why we say no. And we see the damage that the world can do and how worthless it is compared to what Christ has for us. So he teaches us to say no to ungodliness because he shows us how wonderful he is compared to the world, compared to ungodliness and worldly passions. It's the obvious choice then to choose him instead and to say yes to him and no to sin. First John Chapter 2, verses 6 through 17 says this. 1 John 2, 16 through 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here we see the sharp contrast between what the world is offering us and what Christ is offering us. Uh, the world is offering us something that will pass away, but God is offering us something that will abide forever himself, ultimately, that he's offering us so much more. So why on earth would we choose sin? Although sadly we still do. Because we don't we forget the reality of who he is compared to what the world has to offer. So we are to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We're to renounce them. But we're to say yes to three other things. We're to say yes in verse 
12 again here, to self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So we're to say yes to those three things. It's interesting how this covers all the bases, these three things. Inward, ourselves, self-control. Outward, being upright, and that's talking about our relationship with other people around us. And then godly, upward towards him, loving him. That is what we're to say yes to. So now we can say yes to those things because we see that sin is not worth saying yes to. Why would we say yes to it? We say yes to these things. And these things make us more like Christ. Christ is making us more like himself on all levels, inward, outward towards other people, and upward towards God. He is doing that work in our life so that we can love God and love other people. That's what living the Christian life is ultimately. That's how Christ summed it up. Is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what he's uh, doing in our lives here by causing us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. And that is, that is what we are to do and he teaches us to do that again by who he is and what he's done for us. And he calls us to learn then and actually put it into practice. Not just um, say that's, that's cool stuff, that's good stuff, but to actually live it out. Um, all right, verse 14. We're going to skip 13 now. We'll get to it at the end. That's the finishing verse we'll look at. But we're going to jump down now to verse 14. Still continuing on how God is sanctifying us, how Christ is sanctifying us and making us more like himself. It says here in verse 14 that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So redeeming something is setting it free. And he set us free from lawlessness. He set us free from the way we lived before we came to him. We were lawless. That We, we didn't want to obey the law. We wanted to obey self. The law was something we did not desire. Um, let's look at 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. First Peter 1, 18 through 19. It says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So here we see what he has done to set us free from that life that we lived in the past. And a ransom is a price that is paid to set someone free, and that's what Christ's death is for us. Again, he's not only set us free from the penalty, but from the power of sin. Back to Titus 2, 11 through 14 here. We're on verse 14. It says this, that he does this for us and he also purifies for himself a people for his own possession. So again, purifying. Again, this is that work he's doing us, making, more, making us more and more like Christ. Christ who is completely pure and that is what he is doing in his work in our salvation is to causing us to be more and more like him. He is purifying for himself uh, a people for his own possession. So he is doing this work. And it's not just for individual people, although it does save individual people. His ultimate goal here is, is a group of people, the bride of Christ. That is, 
That is the work that he's doing. He is, he is a people, which is the church, both Old Testament and New Testament, everyone who has ever trusted in God to save them. They are in this body, and they are his possession. This is what he's been doing throughout history. Let's look at Ezekiel 37.23. This is, passage has a striking resemblance um, to the one that we were studying here. Ezekiel 37, verse 23. It says this, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So this is what God has been doing from the very beginning, and he's continuing to do it today. From Adam to this moment, he has a people that he is saving and causing to be more like Christ. That is what God's work is, and it continues to this day. So now, the last phrase here, we, we are to be a people, the church is to be a people who are zealous for good works. So zealous is being eager to do something, really into it, really wanting to do something. And that's what we are. We are to be zealous for good works. Well, what will cause us to do that? What will cause us to reach that level of, of interest in actually uh, doing good works? What's going to be the inspiration that's going to cause us to do that? Well, again, it gets back to Christ and who he is. But here's what... J.C. Ryle says about this, he says, A zealous man in religion is a man of one thing. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. That is why we are zealous for good works. That's why we want to obey him, because we want to please him. When you love someone, you want to please them. And that is what... Why do we love him then? That's the question. We love him because he first loved us and because of what he has done for us again, as we talked about in the gospel. His amazing love for us. Now, why would we not want to please him? This is the only natural response to someone who has loved us that much. All right, so we see the two things here. He has justified us, saved us from the penalty of sin. He has sanctified us, saved us from the power of sin. And last, and certainly not least, he has saved us by glorifying us, by saving us from the presence of sin. So verse 13 says this, we're waiting for our blessed hope. And the word here for the waiting, again, is not just sitting around like in a waiting room at a doctor's appointment, but it's waiting eagerly, anticipating how awesome this is going to be when he comes back again. That's how we look. That's how John looked at it and in Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the sort of waiting that we have here. We're anxious for it. And here it says that it is our blessed hope. Another word for blessed here is happy, something that should make us happy. If anything's going to make us happy, it's the return of Christ. That is the greatest thing that's going to happen that ever could happen in our lives is when he comes back again. And it is not just blessed, it is a hope. So the question here then is, okay, how does, how does this give us hope? What is our hope? 
John Piper says this, Indeed, many lack hope because we think we need something we do not need. In the end, what we really need is Christ. He is the sum of all our hopes. So why is the, the, the return of Christ our blessed hope? Because Christ is our hope. That is what we are hoping for, Christ and having him forever. That is, if anything, again, brings us hope. That, that is the thing which gives us hope. We get to be with Christ forever, and one day that will happen. Um, another thing that we hope for, again, is to be more Christ-like, like we've been talking about here. That's the work he's doing in our lives, and we hope that this finally reaches its completion and finally happens, and it does. J. Gresham Machen says this, The Christian hope is the hope of a time when even the possibility of sinning will be over. It is not the hope, then, of a return to the condition of Adam before the fall, but the hope of an entrance into a far higher condition. And so that's what he has in store for us. We will never have the possibility of sinning anymore. Sin will be gone. Finally, we will be like Christ. And we look forward to this appearing of the glory of Christ, his second coming. That's how it's described here, the appearing of the glory. So when he comes, it's going to be an amazing, glorious, beautiful thing that will be indescribable. We cannot describe it. That's, that's how, how it is. But what's neat about this is it will be so amazing and so glorious, it will actually glorify us. That's when we will be glorified. It's when Christ returns. It will be so amazing that it will actually do a work and transform us and now make us glorious so that we will never sin again. That's the moment of glorification. And we see that in 1 John 3, 2. It's actually described here as what happens. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So when he comes back again, why is it going to be glorious? Because we will see Christ as he is. That is glory. And that will glorify us. It will actually transform us and, and make us into Christ-like people, that process of salvation will finally be completed when he comes back again. Uh, there will be no more need for salvation because it all has been accomplished. He who began the good work in us will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus when he comes back again. So that is our destiny. Our destiny is to be like Christ, and it will happen. And that is what, that's how he saves us. He saves us for that purpose. And then what do we get to enjoy? We get to enjoy God forever without any of this sin or any of this stuff that makes this life difficult. All that stuff will be gone. We'll just have Christ. In conclusion, I just want to read a poem written by Robert Murray McShane. Um, and I just believe this glorifies Christ and shows us the great salvation that we have. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, 
Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. A closing prayer. Father, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for the complete work that you do. You don't just set us free from the penalty of sin, Lord, but you set us free from sin, ultimately, and we are grateful for that. We thank you, Lord, that our future is the eternity of enjoying you without any more sin. Lord, we thank you for all this that you have done, and Lord, help us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Help us to see how superior you are to what the world has to offer. Help us to be taught by that, Lord. And Lord, help us to um, glorify you with our lives. Lord, we just lift you up. We lift you up, Christ, for who you are and all you've done for us. And we magnify and glorify you. May you be praised forever and ever. Amen.